and welcome to the Two Gals in a Mic podcast. I'm your host, Sue Curver, and today I'm sitting down with Karen Vasquez to chat about what it looks like to be your own best advocate. Karen served in the Navy and through this experience learned what it truly means to see a future even when it's not what you imagined that it would look like. Karen, welcome to the show. Hi, Sue. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I'm glad that you're here. Why don't we start by talking about your time in the Navy? Tell us about your decision to join the Navy and what happened after you returned from Desert Storm. When I was 19, I was in beauty school, but I was also a licensed manicurist. I was basically like putting myself through school and I was partying a lot and I wasn't really focused and I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. I looked into Club Med and it was like, you know, 1990s, so you had to wait on hold and I never got through. And I was like, you know what, I'll look at the military. And I started with the army because I just broke up with this guy who was in the army and he was like airborne. And he told me like how great it was. And I was like, I could do that. And when I got there, they're like, no, you can't do that because you're a girl. And then the other part was, is the running and the camping. I don't like running. I don't like camping. So the Navy worked for me. <laughs> like I can swim instead of run. Yes. Count me in. 1990 was when I started boot camp. And it was in Florida back when they used to just, you know, send the females to Florida. Was your boot camp segregated? Was it all only women? It was completely segregated. We had men and we had women and we worked together sometimes. They didn't really want us there. Being called a female was an insult. You know, you don't want to be a useless female. So we had a, a full female company. We would see guys in passing, but we wouldn't really talk to them. Yeah, it was completely segregated, all men and then all women. One time I was coming back from um, medical. On my way back, I was barely there like a few days. So my, my uniform was a mess. They had us carrying around this big trench coat and it was like 90 degrees and, you know, like 90% humidity, something ridiculous like that. And I'm walking and I hear this man yelling at me. There's like a, a company of men standing over there and, and this company commander's just yelling, yelling, yelling. And then he calls me over in front of the company and starts dressing me down in front of it. Like, like, look at this. She's, she's a mess. He pretty much tore me apart in front of his company and like, see, you don't want to be a useless female like this. And I'm just like, okay. At the time and the way that our generation, I think was raised is that we always had to like make men feel better about everything. And there was some sort of people pleasing thing in me where I just stood there and took it. And I've had people say to me, like, why didn't you say anything? I'm like, because it was boot camp and I really didn't know any better at the time. I didn't know how to advocate for myself. So what happened after boot camp? What kind of work did you get into? And did you continue to have these sexist encounters? I was a non-designated seaman. That meant that I was an E3. I didn't really have an MOS or a specific job. So they put me into deck department and the division I was in was boats, maintain the boats. Uh, we'd paint them, we'd tune up the engines and it was all on the boat deck of the ship and it was amazing. In, in my division, it was pretty cool. Like the people that I worked with were great. And when I went to mess crank on the ship, this was also on my first ship while I was in deck department, um, I got felt up in rank. I think one of the chiefs noticed the supervising chief. She it was a woman and she moved me like from the galley to the wardroom. I mean, I don't really know if that was like a coincidence or, but it happened pretty fast. There was really nobody to report that stuff to because, you know, well, you're here. What do you expect? It was kind of like on us. Those are the things that they would say to us. 
and yeah, it did get progressively worse. So we did the whole desert storm thing. And then when we came back from the med cruise, we were stationed in Norfolk, Virginia, and we put the ships in the yards. And when that happens, the small boats go to a boat repair shop. So me and another woman and three other guys were sent there. And one of them was my direct supervisor of my boat. He was great. He taught me so much and like, he was very great to work with. So he recommended that I go with them. And then another woman went with us. So me and this other woman and these guys go over there from our ship. And we are two of the first women to ever work in that part of that command. And it was all men. And we were two women. They had women in the offices, but they really weren't part of our direct division. So you're in the shipyard with these small boats, the small boat that came off of the larger Navy vessel that you were on. What were you doing with the small boats? We did fiberglass body work. It was pretty cool. They taught us how to do it, how to make a molding and how to, you know, set it up and sand it. It was, it was actually pretty cool. But during our training, like, first of all, they didn't really want us there. Uh, we asked for safety equipment. The smallest size they had was medium and we were both very petite. So they were going to just send us back to the ship rather than order equipment. We're like, well, we can work just as hard as the guys and we'll prove it. We're like, well, you'll have to do it without, you know, safety equipment. We're like, okay, whatever. Cause you know, when you're, when you're 20, you're, you're like, whatever. Karen, I'm sitting here cringing as you're telling this story. Okay. Keep going. So no safety equipment in the boat yard, working mm -hmm. on small boats, doing fiberglass. Yes. It was an Ooh. enclosed bay. It was so big. I want to say there were like 30 other boats on Davits there. And that was the year that we took red lead off of, this was 91. This was the year that we took red lead off of the small boats because, you know, there's lead. We got to get it off of there. And the only way to get it off is by sanding it. We had people in the next, the boats next to us in like head to toe hazmat gear, respirators, and we had cotton coveralls and the coveralls had long sleeves and we taped duct tape around the sleeves where the openings were. We had socks and um, we wore dust masks and we had gloves, but they weren't like heavy duty gloves. They were just like knit gloves. They were kind of cheap. And at the end of the day, we would use masking tape to remove fiberglass from our skin and then she would pull the fiberglass out of my back with masking tape and I'd do the same for her. Shortly after we started doing that, it felt like I had a cold all the time and she had one too. So when I left there about six months later, my fingers started getting numb. From my first ship, I went from there to a school, a school for radio men. If you've ever seen a movie with a spunky little sailor running up to a teletype and ripping a message off and then running it to the, that was us. When I was in A school, I had a guy that was stalking me. He would like do stuff to me and rank. It's weird how limited we were and how much retaliation we would receive for reporting things. So then I go to my second ship. This is in San Diego. So yes. you're in your second ship in San Diego. You've gone through A school, so you got your rating. So you don't have to do any more fiberglass work. No. So then after that, I dislocated my shoulder. I got medevaced out of there and I was sent to shore duty. And right about this time, we had eliminated teletypes and everything was internet. This was like 93. They phased out the radium in there and sent us to 32nd Street. How about that cold in your fingers? So I started experiencing numbness and tingling. Actually, I think before I left my first ship, because I remember going to medical and telling them about it. And they're like, that's not really happening, Karen. You're faking it. I'm like, no, I'm not. But I couldn't get it to happen while I was in front of them. At the 32nd Street Command, I had a bout with food poisoning. 
the food poisoning put me in front of a doctor and I had this, it's called a Raynaud's attack in front of him. Well, at the time, I'd never heard of a Raynaud's attack. The doctor I'm speaking to, he watches it happen and says, is that pain on your hands? And I'm like, did I start painting while I was in here? I don't think so. Like you saw what happened. He starts looking through all these medical books, trying to find these symptoms. And he's like, I don't know what to do. So they referred me to rheumatology at Balboa Hospital. Everything came up inconclusive. I was in a place where the rheumatologists were like, okay, that's a symptom, but we think it's like your birth control pills, stop smoking, eliminate caffeine. And I'm like, okay, I did all those things. It continued, but I was still coming up without any type of diagnosis. They did, still didn't know what to do with me. Um, what was happening with your hands at this point? Were you able to use them? Yes. There was no damage to my hands at this point. It was just, they would turn like red, white, and blue. With the Reynolds phenomenon, it chokes the shit out of your blood vessels. And it's the smooth muscles around those blood vessels that do that in places that are distant from your heart, like your hands or your toes. I've experienced it in my nose and in my, my tongue. <laughs> it's, it's really kind of weird. You can get Raynaud's in any, any part of your body. And, and I think this is something that was the zeitgeist of people who have these types of diseases like scleroderma, lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, fibromyalgia. It takes a while for them to be diagnosed. And I think part of that could be that the rheumatologist doesn't have experience with this particular autoimmune disease. But I think the other part of that is that those symptoms that manifest or that are called a group of symptoms, like all of those symptoms haven't yet presented enough of themselves to be given an official name like scleroderma. Some people define scleroderma as an overproduction of collagen. And I think the overproduction collagen of collagen is a finished, it's the finishing product. It's, it's caused by your antibodies killing all these healthy cells. And then those cells are replaced with scar tissue, which is made of collagen. It's an autoimmune disease and they're classified by the groups of symptoms that you have. So with me, I had the kind of autoimmune disease that my antibodies can't tell the difference between certain types of healthy cells and bad cells. So they attack all of them, not all of my cells, but just those specific kind of cells. Let's connect the dots. So eventually you were diagnosed with scleroderma. After I got out. After you got out, were you discharged because of this condition or did you get out on your own accord? No, um, I actually opted for the early out because by this time, the sexual harassment and my command had gone up so far that I was having panic attacks. And my boyfriend that I was living with at the time was like, well, Karen, why don't you just report them? I'm like, report them to who? Like the, the chief that I reported to was like one of the guys doing it. I was also one of those women who was like, well, I'm one of the guys and that is the biggest myth. So I got out six months early and then I moved to Wisconsin to go to nursing school. Um, why, why nursing school? Why did you um, choose that path? At my last command at 32nd street, I opted to go to night school to be an EMT and I loved it. I looked into going to nursing school and the boyfriend at the time that I was dating, he was from West Salem, Wisconsin, and there was a good nursing school in La Crosse. So I thought, well, it's gonna be cheaper to live out there and I've never been there. So what the hell, let's go. I moved out there with him. I eventually broke up with him like a few months after I got there, but I stayed there and finished school. The place where I was diagnosed was Madison, Wisconsin. I went for like that routine checkup when you get out where they put you in the VA system. 
And they're like, you have scleroderma. And I'm like, I don't know what that is. They gave me something called nifedipine, which was blood pressure medication. It was the only thing available to kind of dilate my blood vessels to keep it open. But I didn't know how to operate in the cold. I was of the mind of, I'm not going to let scleroderma run my life, but I'm going to drive three hours one way to go see the doctor as often as I needed to. It was like so crazy. So eventually, like I had some doctors close by. The VA had this thing called fee basis. So I was eventually approved for fee basis. I had a rheumatologist and an internal medicine guy, and I kept having this infection on my, my right thumb that would not heal. And they're like, oh, you know, we just got to let it run its course, run its course. And then it started turning green and black. Are you serious? Yeah. Yeah. Oh my it gosh. So painful. And I had grown so unaccustomed to having these wounds open up because what would happen is, is the nifedipine was not strong enough to deal with the harsh winters of Wisconsin and not knowing much about, you know, being in the cold was not helpful. I went into the emergency room at a local hospital they did something called an angiogram. So you have two arteries that go into your thumb and then there's a vein that takes the blood away. The two arteries were completely choked off. The attack had gotten so bad and it happened so many times that it just stayed that way. My thumb was being nourished through vein backflow. The doctor that did it at that hospital was like, you need a digital sympathectomy. I'm like, okay. So the VA was approving some things, but they're like, oh no, no, you've got to come to Madison, Wisconsin and, or Milwaukee and get yourself in the system. So this was still three hours away. So I have this gangrenous thumb and my roommate at the time, who's like an amazing angel, drives me out there with um, a friend of ours. So I get in there and I go in through the emergency room. They admit me into the hospital and I'm in so much pain. Vicodin was like Pez to me. So they finally gave me some morphine and gave me some relief. I was the only female on the floor. They had no other rooms with a female in it. So they had to kick a bunch of guys out of a room. So I had already pissed off all the other residents. So I was not making any friends. Well, after it wore off, I was in so much pain, I was crying. And I went and told the nurse, I'm like, can you please contact the doctor and get me some morphine? I'm in so much pain. The flesh on my thumb is ischemic. That means it's dying and falling off, like full gangrenous glory. And it's so painful. And the nurse looks at me and goes, it's just your thumb. You're just, you're just overreacting. And this was a woman. And I'm like, okay, I'm not. Got to a point where I was like so upset, I could not be reasoned with. So I'm going there thinking I'm going to get a digital sympathectomy. The nurses are telling me I'm overreacting. The doctor really doesn't know what to do. And so this vascular surgeon comes in and says, well, instead of the digital sympathectomy, what we can do is we can insert a needle into your neck. It'll go through the front of your neck into like one of my spinal discs. And they do a sympathetic block where they like inject something in there where it blocks the pain and it opens up the blood vessels. And but what about the infection? I, I'm pretty sure I was probably given oral antibiotics. So was this incident with your thumb the first time that you felt that you were advocating for yourself? It, in retrospect, yes. I didn't know how to advocate for myself. So there was a lot of emotion. It was like being gaslit. Mm. Like you're so gaslit that it feels like I, lose, I can't talk when I think about it, how I felt. And this was one of those instances where I just 
I couldn't communicate. So by the time the vascular surgeon got there, I'm like, there's no way you're putting a needle in my neck, in my spine. Oh my God, it's safer to do surgery. What the hell do I know? But nobody thought to like send in someone with maybe a sedative, maybe some um, psychiatric care, because I was basically having a nervous breakdown. It was horrifying. There were little bits of it where I was starting to advocate for myself, but it was more like anger. You know, you don't know what to do. No one's listening to you. You're constantly being gaslit. And there's just so much anger, like I can't even speak. And you're coming from this whole background where you've just constantly been degraded and told that you're less than and that you're worthless. I would imagine that that's really hard to then speak up for yourself, especially when physically you're in a lot of pain. Yeah. Right? And I don't look like it because it's just the tip of your thumb, Karen. Why would that hurt so bad? That was the nurse. The doctor came in and it was like, don't ever hold pain medication from her again. Let me ask this because I just want to make sure that we connect the dots here. So you talked a lot about being at the shipyard and doing this asbestos work and not having the correct personal protective equipment and having people make fun of the people that actually wore the personal protective equipment. (laughs) Is all of this a result of that work that you did with the fiberglass? I believe it is. No one in my family has scleroderma. There's actually a textbook and it shows the study of men who worked with fiberglass epoxies that had scleroderma. So I think it's like a combination of maybe a genetic predisposition and then exposure. And maybe those two combinations are what caused my um, autoimmune response. It's it's weird because autoimmune diseases are, um, they're usually misunderstood for a lack of immunity or a weakness in immunity. And it's, it's not, it's that our immune system works fine. It just has really poor judgment. So there's some kind of response we're having to something in our environment or it's genetic or it's both. There are a lot of women in the VA system that have fibromyalgia, lupus, all kinds of stuff like that. So how did you go from advocating for yourself in that Mm -hmm. situation with the needle and with the thumb to being an advocate, not only for yourself, but also for other veterans, women veterans, because you call yourself a veterans healthcare aficionado, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yes. I write about it in my blog and I talk about it on my podcast. I took all that down for a minute because I lost all faith in myself. (laughs) It's like one of those imposter syndrome moments, but I'm in the process. Um, You know, I think the thing that made me cross over from crazy person and, and, and not, I wasn't crazy for reacting the way I was. I, now I look back at it. I'm like, that's completely natural because I understand gaslighting now. Once I learned how to kind of filter through that, I started making jokes with my doctor. So I'd like start poking fun and making gallows humor. And then I learned how to tell people what I have. I just started using humor and relating that to what I'd have. Eventually in San Diego, they started having me on grand rounds. That's where specialists take medical students through a group of patients. They go to each patient's room and they have to like listen to the symptoms and signs and then make a diagnosis. I would see people getting so depressed when I would tell them what I had or just have so much pity in their face that I felt like I ha- I would have to take care of them. Like, no, no, it's not that bad, I'm alive, you know, I'm okay. You're really not okay, but I'm telling you about this and you getting sad about me 
makes me uncomfortable. And then I moved to Loma Linda VA and that's where I really kind of caught the wind in my sails and that was around 2001. I got better at explaining. The progression was shocking to me. I was a nursing student so I went right to the medical books when I got diagnosed and saw people with hands like the kind I have now. I was scared to death. I'm like, oh my god, that's never going to happen to me. I'm not going to let this happen to me. Like, I have the power to do that. I really didn't. I figured out what I needed to do was just like live through this and I don't want to say finding purpose, but finding a reason to live. 2001 was the year that I completely shut, my brain was starting to shut down because I had given up. I stopped eating. I was down to like 85 pounds, fully dressed in boots and a jacket. And I finally, you know, went to mental health in San Diego and they hooked me up with a psychopharmacologist who helped me get my brain back. That opened my eyes to how psychologically hard it is to deal with a chronic illness while you're starting to become disabled. The other thing was, is I'm fucking ableist, like crazy ableist, because I did not want to be associated. I didn't want to be called disabled. And I don't think it was like, oh, because I hate disabled people. I just didn't want to be that way because they're pretty much segregated and not treated the best. Well, and you had um, already lived through that. I mean, you, you lived through that <laughs> simply yeah. because yeah. of your gender and the time that you were in the Navy. So who wants to continue to live through that in this next chapter of your life, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. So you've turned all of this into positivity and now you're on stage as a comedian and you're sharing your story, right? Yes. Yes. Does that give you that sense of purpose? I mean, you're obviously not in that place where you were. No, I'm, it's, a, yeah. it's, I mean, it like, even as soon as 2013, people that met me when I first came to LA, they're like, you're just like a deer in headlights. And now I'm so much more outgoing and, and able to have confidence. And that came from a lot of medication, a lot of therapy. I have done years of therapy, meditation training, yoga yoga is like the best they're not great by themselves they all have to work together so all of that together pretty much saved my life and i think that the depression would have killed me before the scleroderma would have because i was starving myself eventually i would have had some kind of weird complication all of these things combined taught me to ask better questions taught me how to speak for myself and i i guess like I became an advocate for others when I started sharing what I had online. The other part is I'm not really good with support groups. So I had to find a way to find my way without a support group. My first one was in 1995, I think. And everyone was like women in their forties. And I was, you know, like 23, you know, just starting out. And every time I'd meet someone, oh, you have scleroderma, I'm so sorry. And I'm like, I fine. What is wrong with you people? Like, I'm not dying. There's also that acceptance too of like, okay, it might kill me. It might not. But if I live like I'm dying, I'm definitely going to die sooner than later. So you turn that around. Yes. Sure. I turned that around yeah. and, and I wanted to bring the vocabulary of chronic illness into like the zeitgeist and, and not so much just the chronic illness community. The chronic illness community knows all about their illness. Like they don't need any more awareness. But I found that going on stage and talking about it not only empowered, gave me power over 
the the illness I have, but it gave me power to give permission to people to laugh at these scary, awful things. Because trying to explain scleroderma to people is depressing enough. Like, why not make them laugh about my adventures? And not everybody's into that. And I get that. Um, but that's, you know, that's what works for me. And if it, if it helps another person even a little bit or saves them some time or some, you know, from having to do the crazy running in circles that I did, I'd do it forever. It's fulfilling. It makes me feel like I'm giving not just back to the chronic illness community, but kind of like contributing to the world. Like this is what I've learned and you guys need to know about this. Not all people with disabilities are in the same headspace. There are people who have been born with it, so they're accustomed to it. They're accustomed to asking for help. They're accustomed to not feeling shame when you ask for help. Our generation are like, you know, throw some dirt on it and walk it off and suck it up and cowboy up and all these other things. And those are the kind of things that we do that cause further harm. Well, and I was going to ask you that. What is your best piece of advice for people who maybe weren't born with this? So they're in that headspace where they're facing a tough diagnosis and it was unforeseen. I would recommend getting into mental health care. Start seeing a therapist, start seeing a psychiatrist to monitor. You may not need antidepressants, but there may come a point where you do. Autoimmune diseases have enough studies to show that stress makes things worse for your health. So if you're going through that, I highly recommend getting yourself therapy. That's what I would go back and do different. I would start in therapy and start processing the changes that are going to have to be made. Because even if whatever you have like never irritates your daily life or gets in your way, it's still in your mind and you're still coping with it. And the fear is there. We all like to say, I'm okay, I'm fine, because it's hard to feel those emotions. And it's a constant cycling through the stages of grief because it's progressive. You're gonna feel anger, you're gonna bargain one day, you're gonna, you know, there's never like a finite amount of grief you're gonna have. We all have a lot more in common than we think. So people have said to me things like, oh, Karen, you're just so brave. I could never do that. And I'm like, you would if you had to. I've had someone say to me, I didn't invite you because I didn't think you wanted to go because you felt terrible. And I think not extending the invitation is much worse than extending the invitation and then me having to say no. Well, Karen, I just want to acknowledge your courage and your bravery for being here today. I know that some of the stuff that you shared, it infuriates me and it breaks my heart at the same time that any woman should have to be treated in such a manner. And I really hope that your story is more of an empowerment story. So women know their worth and they can mm -hmm. step into their power. Living with a chronic illness is never anything that anyone would wanna have to do, but really hearing your message of hope and advocacy. And now you advocating not only for yourself, but finding the voice to advocate for others is so encouraging. So thank you for being here and for sharing that um, and for passing along your, your wisdom with all of us. Thank you for having me and giving me the platform to share. It's, it's my favorite thing to do. And listeners, thank you for tuning in. So be sure to like, and subscribe. So you don't miss any of these amazing stories. I'll see you next week for another episode of Two Gals and a Mic.